The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Our guest today, Pamela Selig, is the author of Threads of Yoga, Themes, Reflections, and Meditations to Weave into Your Practice. The book was listed uh, under the section of the magazine called Books We Love, and it just got released on the 28th of September. So the book is brand new, but Pamela, you are not brand new to yoga. No, that's true. <laughs> how, tell us uh, uh, something about how you got involved with yoga. and. Sure. Yeah, so um, I have been practicing yoga for a long time, back in the 80s. So I was uh, working on Wall Street in the financial district and not necessarily living a balanced life, really overdoing it, being overly competitive, not a healthy lifestyle. And it started to take a toll physically. And I came down with something I'd never heard of called Bell's Palsy one day, where which is quite dramatic. I'd never heard of it, but half of your face is paralyzed. And I went to the emergency room, found out it's not life-threatening. Most people recover, but it takes a while. And there's really nothing you can do. So at that point, I was encouraged to look into more alternative type medicine, which I didn't know what that was, but especially meditation. Um, so really out of desperation, I turned to meditation, found that I really loved it. And that was sort of my introduction to this whole you know, yoga, meditation, um, this world. Um, and I think I would have really never turned in that direction if I didn't have something you know, quite dramatic happen. And I think that's not unusual. I think a lot of people have that story with, with yoga and meditation. So it was a real life-changing moment. I mean, I, I know something about Bell's palsy. I've never had it. I've had friends who have had it. They were terrified and it looks horrible. Right, <laughs> it looks frightening. Right. And I think if it happened to me and I was in a job like yours, I would say, oh my God, it's the job, it's the stress, it's the madness of this lifestyle. So uh, I'm going to try something different. Yeah, I didn't really want to admit that. But, you know, for me, it wasn't the right path for me. For some people it is, for sure. But for me, I realized I was going too fast in the wrong direction. And I, when I discovered meditation and some practices, just like breathing, and found deep breathing, I found I couldn't do it. I realized something was wrong and I really had to sort of reevaluate. And it just opened up a whole a whole world. So it was kind of a blessing in, in disguise. Yeah. So most of us who are listening to this podcast and, and listening to you, we understand the physical and psychological benefits of yoga pretty well. 
And we're used to people marketing yoga outside the spiritual or religious dimension in which it was grounded. But your book, even though we've just been talking about these physical benefits, your book goes beyond the the material benefits of yoga to reveal what I think is the spiritual ground, its original grounding. So tell us a little bit about how you understand the true purpose uh, of yoga. Well, the physical was the gateway for me and for a lot of people because it it sort of brings awareness into your physical body. But when I discovered some of the texts, that the foundational texts of the yogic philosophy, um, primarily the Yoga Sutras written by Patanjali about 2,500 years ago, when I read that or read commentaries about that for the first time, I was really stunned that it was so beautiful, so simple, and I just couldn't believe I had not heard of it before or learned these things. They basically, the sutras tell you what is yoga and why we do it and how to do it in 196 little, sutra means thread or little statements, not quite sentences. So, you know, not, you can't really misinterpret them too much, but it was just so simple and sort of explained why we do the postures, why we meditate. So I found, you know, over the past 30 years, that was sort of getting lost with all the focus on the physical. Again, not to discount the physical, but the reason why we do that was sort of getting lost. So that really inspired me to write the book. I mean, yoga comes from the Sanskrit root yug, Mm -hmm. which means union. And as I read Patanjali, the, the point of yoga, I don't know if that's the right word, but the, the, the benefit of yoga, the ultimate benefit of yoga is the realization of your union with, and then you can say God, you could say self with a capital S, Brahman, you know, whatever language you want to put to it. And, and, and that seems to be at the heart of your book, that this is, I mean, you don't dwell on it. This is not a, a religious tract in any sense, in, in any manner or, or, or form, but that really seems to inform the book itself. That's absolutely right. The the very first part of the book, I look at really just three th- th- three sutras. The first is now we begin yoga. The second sutra tells us what yoga is. Yoga is the quieting of the mind. And then the third one is just what gets me. You know, it just it just hit me so hard. The third sutra says, and then the seer abides in her true nature his or her, they are true nature. So that's why we do it, so that we can abide in our true nature. That's why we quiet the mind. And how would you define true nature? Uh, that's tricky. And it's, it's, I think, you know, some of the texts, the Upanishads talk about words turn back frightened when trying to describe truth. I love that. It's more of an experience, but there are words, of course, we can use when we glimpse or, or touch that deeper part of ourselves. It's a feeling of many different things, maybe maybe peace, bliss, fullness, joy, connection. And there's different levels. There's, there's subtle levels of these, these experiences. But what I think is amazing is even a person new to yoga practice that does a little practice can quiet the mind, even for a fraction of a second, can experience this. 
And you don't have to be a perfect person or holy or, but, but you can experience this and it can sort of change everything. Then you're sort of, you become more dedicated because you realize, oh, this is, this is who I am. It's not this narrator thought stream in my head that's telling me what to do or how I should be. There's this part of myself that I should be exploring. And that's really the practice of yoga is this exploration of ourselves. Yeah, it's, it seems to me that, I mean, the self we're talking about is not the ego, I would imagine. We're talking about Atman or self with a capital S or, and you're right, the, the, any words we use for these things are just gonna fail. That's why Lao Tzu opens the Tao De Jing with the Tao that can be named is not what we're talking about, not the eternal Tao. So given the limitations of language, when, when we're talking about this self with a capital S or, I mean, you could say we could use the word God, though that is such a loaded term. I love the teaching in the book of Acts in the New Testament, where Paul, quoting uh, a Greek source, defines God as that in whom we live and move and have our being. I mean, I come back to that text over and over and over again. That, If I had to define Tao, I would say Tao is that ultimate reality in which we live and move and have our being. And because we're already in it, living in it, moving in it, it is our essential nature, that's what it means to have our being, then yoga is not giving us something we don't have. It's removing the obstacles that keep us from seeing what we do have, or more importantly, who we really are. Is that where you're at. Yeah, that's so beautiful. That description too from Acts is so beautiful. And yes, you know, it's sort of like we practice and practice yoga, but there's really nothing to do in a way. It's really this remembering or realizing what's already there. But because we live in the modern light, in our modern culture, it's not easy to experience this this depth of our being. It's not easy because we're distracted. And so- All the time, yeah, right. Uh, we're with precision, we're distracted. <laughs> Advertisers know exactly how to describe, how to uh, distract our minds and make us think we need this or that and to be happy, to be uh, complete, where it's, it's already there. It's a matter of just remembering that. But again, it's, there are ways to do this. There are practices to help us. Teachers have walked the path before in all different traditions and left us beautiful instructions, if you want to call them instructions or tips or tricks, or techniques that are very similar and often in different traditions, but they're helpful for us because we are constantly drawn into the, the world and our minds are active and we train them to be active and look outward. And if we don't balance that out, we might never, by looking inward, we might never know who we in fact are, which in the yogic tradition is the great tragedy. Yeah, absolutely. And right now, and you and I are talking on October 6, 2021, right now we're in the midst of this whistleblower coming out uh, from the Facebook community and sharing with us, I don't know if distraction seems too weak a word, but how uh, Facebook, but other social media 
really try to capture our attention through anger and rage, because that's what motivates us when we're in that little s self, as opposed to the, the larger s, uh, the capital S self that, that you're talking about in this book. Yoga can be, I think, an antidote to social media-driven rage. It, I mean, you can't, I mean, I, I imagine that you can go on YouTube and, and watch yoga videos and learn postures. But ultimately, the practice itself is not only selfless, but screenless. It takes us out of that driven mentality. And I was going to say places us, but it's not really placing us because we're already there and simply allows us to be present to what is always here, which is the joy, the, the you know, what the Hindus call sat ananda, pure consciousness, pure being, pure consciousness, pure bliss. Mm-hmm. So y- your book is really t- incredibly apropos to the moment because it is part of this uh, resistance mm-hmm. to the madness that's defining our culture. I do. I like that word resistance. I think it's a radical step to quiet the mind. Well, many people don't even know in our culture that that's even a possibility to quiet the mind. But that's If you don't know otherwise, you think that you are the mind. You are this right. inner voice with your judgments, personality, good and bad. You just assume that you are that. So really the first step is knowing that that's not who you are. That's just a part of your mind. Not good or bad, just a part of your mind. And that there that can be quieted. So knowing that, that that even can be quieted, and then taking the steps to quiet, making this radical maneuver to say, I'm going to close my eyes and I'm going to quiet my mind. And when you do that, you find, oh, this is not easy. And then let's see how other people do this or how to do it. In the Yoga Sutras, Patanjali, his Yoga Sutras are not just philosophy, it's actual instruction. The eight-limbed path, he gives its eight limbs or ways to quiet the mind. And one of those is postures. One of those is breath work. Um, two are meditation. And there are two that are, the, f- the first two are the ethical uh, aspects because without having, or, you know, just trying to be a good person, that's, that's essential to keep a, yourself calm. And then the eighth limb, the last one is samadhi, which we don't have to practice that. That just sort of happens. So it's, it's also instruction to help us know that, that we can do it and there are techniques. And you don't have to do all of them, but the limbs are there to help us so that we can quiet the mind for, and create this antidote to the modern culture. I think it's really important that you brought up uh, the notion of ethics as one of the limbs. Mm-hmm. I think most people who do yoga see it separate from ethics. Uh, in fact, I mean, you can, there's all kinds of scandals in the yoga world, you know, like every other spiritual tradition mm-hmm. where the teachers are, are anything but ethical. But the importance of ethics to spiritual practice in general, and specifically, as you say, in, in Patanjali's Eight Limbs of Yoga, is, is something that, that you highlight, which I think is incredibly important. I, I want to talk to you in a moment 
I want to go back to what you were just talking about, but I want to stick something else in between because you're talking about, you know, what you call witness consciousness. And I do want to go back to that. But you mentioned earlier uh, teachers and you have or had a primary teacher, Swami Sachidananda. Mm-hmm. And I, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about him, how you've came to the integral yoga school of uh, Swamiji? Sure. Well, this was when I was living in New York and the main ashram integral yoga institute is in New York. So that's how I came upon it. Actually, my brother uh, introduced me, brought me in it. And I was struggling at that time with the whole with spirituality in general. I found it, you know, the religions were not drawing me. And so I was sort of in that state. And when I saw the door, there was a sign over it that said, one truth, many paths. And I just loved that. I just felt that connection went in. And I never met Swami Satchidananda. I was there before he passed, but I never met him. I think he passed in 2002. But I immediately felt this very strong connection. And I began to train there in their programs, read all his works. And one of the reasons why I was so drawn to him and his teachings was that he said, the teachings are the teacher. In other words, you don't have to listen to me, or you don't have to give me your power. Or it, it, the teachings are the teacher, and his teachings were so universal. You know, there's no better, or worse path. It's these are the teachings, and for me, as an American woman, I don't think I would have been able to have a guru in person. I just don't think I would have that would have worked for me. I've just experienced too many men in power. Uh, I would never put my trust in any man in power. I just wouldn't with my experience. So it was in a way a good thing that I never met him physically because I didn't have that issue. I just read the teachings and just really felt uh, connected, have been to his ashram in Virginia and San Francisco since then. So I find his teachings incredibly, they're not difficult to understand. And yet they're so profound. And I read some very kind of more challenging yogic information that's out there. And, and it's beautiful. But I, I'm always amazed that Swami Satchidananda is saying almost the same thing, but in this most simple, beautiful way. Um, so I, that's why I'm, I'm very connected to that path. And I also love the physical yoga that they teach. It's very uh, calming. Uh, it's very restorative. And I think like you use that word antidote, I find it an antidote to the modern culture um, out there today. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Yeah, they even speak at Yogaville. This, that's his center in, uh, in Virginia. Uh, they even talk about restorative yoga. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a major part of what he does. So he, he was, I don't know how old you are, but I'm in my 70s. He was a huge you know, impact on uh, the world, the, the America I grew up in, you know, in the 60s and 70s. 
And I've been to Yogaville. You said that you've been to Yogaville. One of the amazing things at Yogaville, besides the practice, is the Lotus Temple. You know, I'm going to try to describe it and see if if this does it justice. But uh, Swamiji was interested in the the mystical heart of all the religious traditions and sciences for that matter. And when you go into the, the temple, there is below, you, you walk in, you get your cushions, you sit down, but in a, I guess it must be down in a basement, there is a powerful light generator and it sends this light up and it, they, this is old technology, we would do it differently today, but it follows these uh, bent glass rods that come out of the f- center of the floor together and then separate with each rod leading to a separate shrine for the different traditions that the the uh, temple is honoring. And each tradition is lit equally with all the others, but they're all uh, illuminated by this central light. And I thought, I mean, every time I've been there and every time I've sat in that room, that to me is part of his brilliance, of his vision, of his insight, and and really speaks to the heart of the kind of spirituality that I'm interested in, one that honors the various traditions, but sees them coming from a central source. And it seems to me, and you can tell me what your take is on this, that yoga is a way, and, and there are others, but yoga is a way to, even though it comes from a tradition, it's a way to get below, beneath, beyond, I don't know what word you want to use, formal, organized religious traditions to that common energy source. I 100% agree. I think that's how I see yoga. It's I think of it as the truth that sort of under undergirds a lot mm. of the religious traditions. Um, but the, and that lotus temple is... It's, it's replicating that it's a circular room. It's a, it's, that's what's so amazing how it is circular and the light is the like almost like the Kundalini energy that goes up and then down to each the different altars around the circle. Um, and even there's an altar to future religions unknown known yet. And you know that truth, and I, I grew up in the Christian tradition, the truth, the mystical truth that Jesus's teachings are so beautiful, simple, profound. Those teachings, you can find them in the other traditions in different words and different ways, and it it's just so beautiful. That's I feel like yoga shows us in a way how to quiet the mind so that we can get to those deeper aspects of the different religions. If you're drawn to a religion, you don't have to be. But it's the truth underneath it that I think you're then allowed to have access to. As you said, it's there already. We're there. We're there already. We are that. But it's covered. It gets covered. Right. Which is the real work of spirituality is to uncover it again, I guess. And, yeah. and, I, and part of that uncovering is cultivating the witness consciousness that you talk about in the book. Tell us a little bit about that and why it matters? Well, I think witness consciousness is called many different things. It can be called like the seer, the knower. It's the part of us that 
doesn't change. And in yoga, in yogic terms, there's the real and the unreal. And in this realm that we're in, uh, everything changes. It begins, it has a middle and it ends. Even a thought has a beginning, middle, and end. Everything is, is in their journey, in its journey, whatever it is. Except there's a part of us that doesn't change. It's like when you look in the mirror, you feel like you're still five years old or no matter how old you are, you, there's that part of you that still feels like that you're you. It's the unchanging part of you. That's the witness. And it's behind the thoughts or beneath the thoughts. It's when the thoughts quiet, we can tap into that real part of ourselves that doesn't change. That's not of this realm because it's not changing. It's real. That's witness. And that, you know, the reason why I think we, you know, we're here and why we want to go a little deeper, tap into this deeper, true part of ourselves is because when we do, we can then bring that into this, this world. We can, our lives can be directed from this deeper place. It's a more joyful place. It, it's, it's peaceful. There's, but it's also, I think part of the reason why we're here perhaps is to bring this true part of ourself into this world. And that's, that's what, that's our purpose because we're unique where uh, there's nothing, no one here like us. So we should be that person as opposed to trying to be somebody that we think we should be. It's quieting that and finding that deeper us, who we are, and then expressing that. That's beautifully put. Let's talk something practical for a moment. Um, I mean, so certainly asanas, the postures of yoga are practical and one needs to practice them. But in your book, you raise a couple of other practices and there's one I wanted to share or have you share with us because, well, it, it's central to my own spiritual practice and that's uh, mantra japa, the recitation of a, of a mantra. And I mean, I, I, I do this daily. I, I have a mantra that I was given by Swami Swahananda, when he initiated me into the Ramakrishna order of Vedanta Hinduism, I repeat that every day. I've done that for, I don't know, 11 years or something. And then I have a Hebrew mantra that I received from another teacher that I also do every day. And then I have, and those are formal times during the day. And then I repeat a mantra over and over again throughout the day, whenever it pops into my head, or remember, I, whenever I remember to do it. Tell us a little bit about why you think mantra practice is important and how somebody might find a mantra, start a practice like that, mm -hmm. especially for people who are going to go, yeah, yoga, right, I'm going to not do that. <laughs> but they could do this. Right. So I think for meditation, any kind of meditation, it usually starts with the breath, with somebody just, even if it's just for two minutes, feeling the breath come in, feeling the breath come out, Sometimes in the nose, feeling the air in the nose, the sensation of the airflow in and out. And that's maybe the beginning. But then what usually is so helpful is layering on a mantra. So you have the breath already, you're working, you know how to kind of settle down with the breath and then add a mantra on top of that. That seems to be a nice way to do it. And there are Sanskrit mantras 
which according to the yogic tradition have an energetic quality that works on your energy on your energetic body you don't even have to know what the the sanskrit words mean it's the energy of the mantra is working on you so that's sort of an extra maybe benefit from a sanskrit mantra but you don't have to use a sanskrit mantra you can use your own language any language and you can just sort of see what connects with you there might be a little bit of exploration initially to find a mantra unless you know unless you have a teacher who can give you a mantra but if you don't know a teacher and you just want to use this tool to help quiet your mind you can just use a mantra very simply like inhale may there be peace in my heart exhale maybe may there be peace in the world inhale maybe there be peace in in my heart exhale may there be peace in the world that's a lot of words that may be too many words you can just use om on the inhale shanti means peace on the exhale om on the inhale shanti so you can sort of i offer a few different sort of classic mantras in my book but you can sort of just explore any words that are soothing to you love on the inhale peace on the exhale although love might have a connotation that could start the thinking process. So sometimes, you know, you have to use more neutral words, but it's really just feeling, quieting, feeling what resonates with you, exploring a little bit and then sticking with it. And you'll feel the soothing quality. It'll help you stay out of your thoughts. In the Jewish tradition, mantra work, which isn't called mantra, but uh, the practice is the same. Mantra practice, you you either find or are given a mantra and you're supposed to work with it for 40 days. And if you get through the entire 40 days with your mantra, then the mantra is now ingrained. It's part of you and it'll, you know, it'll just resonate and you'll be able to use it for your life. But if you only make it to 39 days, the rabbis say, well, it's not your fault. It's just the wrong mantra. <laughs> so find another one and give it another shot. But it is a very simple practice. Well, I don't know, simple, but it's 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 an easy practice. You know, it's it's not a complicated practice to do, though it may be challenging to keep it, um, you know, to stay with it. Right. But uh, well, it's another tool because what happens is you'll notice you're in a thought, and then you just have something to come back to. Right. It's, it's so it's sometimes the breath isn't enough. You know, you'll you'll be like, oh, I'm in the supermarket again. So. You, that's good that I noticed. It's not bad. And then you come back, you have something, it's like a rope to hang on to when your mind is, is drifting. Right. And, and when you're suddenly caught in, in despair or rage or anger or, or I mean, anything, the mantra is, a, is an opportunity to ground yourself so that you can witness the fleeting feeling and not get caught up in it. Yes. Um, it's, it's very powerful that way. I, I've got one last question. And Hopefully, it's going to bring the conversation to close on an optimistic note. But in in your book, you talk about the yugas, and you quote from a book called The Holy uh, Science, The Holy Science, by Swami Sri Yukteswar, Mm -hmm. a great Indian teacher from the early 20th century. And, And Swami says, the dark age of Kali having long since passed, the world is reaching out for spiritual knowledge. So... And, and you explained that he thought 
Kali Yuga was over in the year 500 of the Common Era. My own sense is we're in the middle of it. It's definitely not over. And my fear is that that spirituality, yoga, meditation is all being co-opted by the darker energies of the Kali Yuga, especially in the the way capitalism uses these things and perverts them. But your position is much more optimistic than mine. So let's end this on an optimistic note. Tell us, I mean, share that optimism with us and what you see as a teacher of yoga that feeds it. Okay. Well, I hope it wasn't confusing in my book, but Sri Yukteswarji said that the year 500 common era was the darkest point of the Kali Yuga. So you're right, it wasn't over then. It still continued, but we're mo- we've moved out of it and we're in Dwapara. I, I'm not I'm probably not mispronouncing that. The, the not as bad as the Kali. So we're moving out. And I, I like how, you know, the, the idea that it's cyclical, time is not linear in the yoga tradition. So many uh, of the indigenous cultures feel, see time in a cyclical nature. So based upon where we are, where the earth is in the universe. So these teachings, these, this ability to connect with our deepest self, our true self, gets covered up in the Kali Yuga. It's harder. And as we come out, we can then access these teachings. We can open ourselves more to these higher frequencies and achieve these altered states more easily. So I know it's, it's a chaotic time and it's negativity everywhere. And sometimes it has to get worse before it gets better. I think we're in that worst point. But I do think that more people are interested in this, this topic now and are being drawn to it. So to me, it's, that's what's happening. We're being drawn to this information. People are understanding, wait, I think there's more to life than consuming. And I, I think we can see it. I, I feel hopeful with the younger generation. I'm in my 50s. My kids are in their 20s. It's there. I feel like they're not as hung up on the consuming culture. I think they have more awareness in a lot of areas, including taking care of the earth. And I think that's because we're coming out. We're, we're opening up our facilities in a, in a bigger way. So that's what I think. That's what I feel. Let's say fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, though. I, I, did, I did misquote from the book. So you, you were clear. <laughs> I was not. So I, 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 like the way, I like the way you understand this. The only thing I would like to suggest to anyone who's listening to this, yes, there's more to life than consuming. But before you give up consuming, you should buy this book. <laughs> because otherwise you're missing out on a really interesting exploration of yoga. Our guest today, Pamela Selig, is the author of this book. It's called Threads of Yoga, Themes, Reflections, and Meditations to Weave into Your Practice. You can learn more about her work at PamelaSelig.com. Pamela, thanks so much for talking with us on the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Thank you for having me. I so enjoyed the conversation.
You've been listening to the Spirituality and Health Podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review us in your favorite podcast app. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share us on social media and tag us at SpiritHealthMag. You can also follow me on the Spirituality and Health website, where I write a regular column called Roadside Musings. Don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. The Spirituality and Health Podcast is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano, and our executive producer is Mallory Corbin. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Jane Asher, and I believe, and from what I've been shown, that when our loved ones die, they don't really leave. They just slip into the next room. On my podcast, I explore the bigger picture surrounding life on Earth and what follows when we do die. I speak with authors, friends, transition specialists, and other experts about every facet of death, dying, grief, hospice care, cultural traditions, and also our beliefs about that final journey and what we may end up facing. Please join me on the next room on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.